good for a preacher to uh, be engaged in the public reading of Scripture as well as teaching. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like one, there's a lovely lady by the name of Debbie Webster who's already there getting them because she's a champion. Stick up your hand and one will come to you. As you can see there, we've got two New Testament readings. So the first one from uh, Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. And then after that one from Ephesians. Uh, if I had a long time, I'd actually read three chapters of Corinthians, but uh, we're, we're not that... Oh, you, you'll see why I say that later on tonight. Um, how are we going? And there, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, from verse 1 through verse 8. says this, as for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honourable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, Anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Second reading is from uh, Paul's letter to Ephesians, so just flick back a little bit. Chapter 3, verse 14 through 21. Ephesians 3, beginning verse 14, Paul writes... For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of the glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ." And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. It's good to finish the reading with an amen, isn't it? Let me just check I've got the power here. Beautiful. Um, feel free to keep your Bibles open wherever you want because, again, we're going to be jumping all over the shop. Just going to make sure this is working. And we are. And let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you uh, that you speak to us in your word and you do so for our good. Please help us now to concentrate, to rejoice and to tremble at your word, uh, to take it into our hearts, to be transformed by it, to become more like our Lord and Saviour Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Brothers and sisters, will you be content in the nursing home? 
It's a question that actually assumes that you'll even get to the stage where you've lived probably beyond the, nat uh, the, the national average and have enough of your mind functioning to appreciate whether you're actually content or not. But should you come to the point in your life where you have the somewhat mixed blessing of knowing that death is slowly rather than instantly coming upon you, when all the trimmings and trappings of this life as you now know it are stripped away, whether that amounts to literally being in a nursing home or just sort of metaphorically, you know, in that, that sort of stage of life, will you be content? It's devastatingly sad that from what I can gather, and I've seen this a little bit, for some people in the nursing home, when the props of life are stripped away, what's left is actually a very bitter and cold person. A person who may even be described by others as, as being successful in their vocation and having good achievements, but who in reality just looks back on a life of many broken relationships, many regrets, for which there's no longer any kind of worldly distraction, hence they become very bitter. On the other hand, the only Christian aunt that I have was once visiting a nursing home, I think it might have been back then to see her mother, and she said there was this elderly lady there in the same sort of area who, though fairly immobile, just exuded joy and, and was content and she was smiling and she was chatty, a, a real pig-in-the-mud kind of a, a scenario. And my auntie's throwaway comment when she was telling me about this was, I bet that lady was a Christian. And I remember thinking to myself, hold on, isn't it a bit silly to assess somebody's spiritual status on the basis of just observing them for, you know, like half an hour or whatever it is. But then later on, I reflected that, A, my auntie's one of those really annoying people who's really perceptive, you know, people like that, they just, yeah, anyway. And B, that um, the first three things listed as the fruit of the Spirit happen to be love, joy and peace. And it is the same Spirit by which our hope for an eternity with Christ is absolutely guaranteed. So... Maybe that lady was a Christian, but in any event, if I make it to the nursing home, whether literal or metaphoric, what's it going to be for me? What's it going to be for you? I want us to hold that thought, it's going to become relevant a little bit later tonight, as we enter into our third and final instalment of our mini doctrine series on the person and work of God the Holy Spirit and of course for tonight we look at the Spirit in relation to sanctification. That's a big fancy word and it means to be made holy in the sight of God, to be sanctified is to be made holy in the sight of God. You see, the Spirit makes us holy by applying the merits of Jesus directly to us as saved sinners and yet the goal of sanctification, the reason that happens, actually includes the idea that we'll progressively conform to the image of Jesus. Uh, here's how I've put it in graph form, for which I'm very proud because I don't naturally do things like this. The Spirit makes us holy and therefore in cooperation, in conscious cooperation with His work and through His empowering we continually become holy. Theologians call this positional and progressive sanctification. 
Now, footnote, there are some theological nerd types who actually disagree with the use of the term progressive sanctification. They think some other words should be used, but I don't care. It's the concept that's important, right? Positional and progressive sanctification. Uh, and in the long term, progressive sanctification, which actually necessitates positional sanctification, makes a world of difference in our lives. And therefore, I would say, in the proverbial nursing home. Now, to begin learning about the Spirit's work in sanctification, it might help to appreciate one of the big differences in how God the Spirit has chosen to operate on either side of the cross, on either side of the ministry of Jesus. Uh, namely, that His indwelling has gone from being provisional to being permanent. Uh, and if you're a note taker, we're at point one on your outline. In the Old Testament, God's Spirit seems to indwell some of God's people, either permanently or temporarily. And you can see that as you flick through all the Old, uh, the Old Testament. Whereas in the New Testament, it seems He only ever indwells all of God's people permanently. So, how do we account for that difference? Well, a key text when we're thinking about this comes from John chapter 7, where we read... On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And John gives us a little theological comment about these words. Verse 39, by this, he meant the spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. Now, that should strike you as a little bit curious when you first read it, because you and I know that the Spirit had, in many ways and times, been given before Jesus. As a matter of fact, Jesus' birth came about because Mary was found to be with a child through the Holy Spirit. When Jesus was brought to the temple, there was that guy Simeon, and, and he'd been told by the Spirit that he, he wouldn't die until he'd seen the Lord's Christ, right? The, the Spirit has come prior to Jesus being glorified. So it must be, in a particular sense, here when Jesus says the Spirit will be given only after he has ascended to God's throne. It must be. In a, and so the question is, well, what is that sense in which the Spirit now indwells people in a qualitatively and quantitatively different way to what he did before. I know some of you have this question because I've been asked a lot from people that have been doing the, uh, the Bible studies at Growth Group. Good on you. Here's the easy way to think about it. You ready? When God, who I'm going to call God the Father, established the nation of Israel and made their land a dwelling place for his name, he did so literally by living among them in a tent. Oh, you remember that whole tent thing with the Israelites in the desert? Yep. And that was so cool. Moses the prophet could boast about this wonderful reality that God had come to dwell among his people. He would say in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 7, What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way Yahweh our God is near us whenever we pray to him? Isn't it cool that God was literally with his people? They were in his presence. And yet, if you know anything about the Levitical law and the sacrificial system, access into God's presence was really difficult on account of sin. And eventually, 
because of the Israelites' ongoing rebellion, generation after generation, God left his tabernacle, which by then was a temple, but God got out of there. Now, later on, when Jesus, who I'm rightly going to call God the Son, came into the world, John's Gospel tells us that he literally tabernacled among his people. Jesus dwelled among the people of God. He is God veiled in flesh, as the hymn says. Hence, those he was with were in the very presence of God. And yet Jesus also informed his followers that he's going to leave. He's going to return to be with God the Father, John chapter 14. And it's actually better if he returns to the Father, because when that happens, he would then send the Holy Spirit. The impure hearts of the Israelites meant that it was hard for them to enter the presence of the Father. The fact that Jesus chose to limit himself in time and place by taking on human flesh in order to die for our sin meant that it was better too if he departed. But on account of Jesus' death and his resurrection and his enthronement, by which God's people are now declared holy and righteous, Jesus could freely pour out his Spirit on all who have faith in him, allowing us to dwell permanently in the presence of both the Father and the Son. When speaking about the work of the Spirit in John chapter 14, Jesus says, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching, my Father will love them, and we, that is the Son and the Father, will come to them and make our home with them. The sense in which the Spirit indwells God's people now, that's different to how he may have done that prior to Jesus' ascension, is that because Jesus has been glorified, saved sinners like you and me can be admitted into the permanent presence of God, the triune God, without him ever compromising his holiness. Now, I wonder if you can see already why Christians, out of sheer delight and gratitude, can't help but want to become increasingly holy. We have something that the former generations just did not have in the lead-up to, uh, to Pentecost. Well, in God's amazing love and kindness, God the Spirit empowers us to do just that, to in grow in our holiness. And he empowers us to do that both as individuals, but also corporately as the church, as the body of believers. And that's what we're going to look at, secondly, point two on your outline. Uh, and for this, we're going to look at the Church of Ephesus, the letter to the Ephesians. In the Church of Ephesus, a number of Gentiles, that is non-Jews, had recently turned, put their faith in Jesus as Lord and Saviour. And the Apostle Paul knew that this meant that they were therefore fully-fledged members of the Kingdom of God, fully-fledged people of God. And the reason he knew that is because they, Gentiles, received the Spirit in just the same way as the original Jewish believers received the Spirit. So these guys are on the same, same playing field. But of course, they didn't know that as much as those who had had the Word of God for a long time, right? And so Paul really wants these new Gentile Christians to appreciate just how much they now stand to inherit as members of, of God's kingdom. And so in Ephesians 3, he tells them what he's been praying for them. And I want us to notice what Paul assumes about the Spirit 
as he prays for these Gentile converts. He writes, Ephesians 3, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Uh, it's probably worth pointing out in these words here, if you look at verse 13, when it says that, that first you, strengthen you, that's in the plural, so for Bogan English, it's kind of like, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen yous, yous peoples. But then you keep going, with, the power through, with power through his Holy Spirit in your inner being, that your inner being is all in the singular, you, 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 your, your individual inner being. You see, Paul assumes that God the Holy Spirit resides and works in the inner being and in the heart of each individual Christian. His work is said to be one of strengthening or empowering. The word power occurs twice in this little section. And this spirit-given power is for the purpose of coming to greater and greater appreciation of what is already ours in Christ. See, it's not power to defeat sickness or power to become rich. It's far more satisfying and far more important than those things. It's power to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And you know, as I read that and as we look at that together, just for a second, I can't help but already make a little point of application just on this bit of Paul's teaching alone. You see, it could very easily be the case that you, maybe some of you, uh, are currently feeling like you're not making much or even any progress in terms of your Christian maturity. Now, there's a few things or perhaps there's even many things that you are not satisfied with in terms of your, your walk with Christ, right? Oh, not doing this well, I'm not, not getting this, right? Well, if that is you, firstly, you need to know that you're almost certainly, definitely not alone. And secondly, our God is very gentle and very approachable. He has graciously given you, you personally, His indwelling spirit. If Jesus is your Lord, He's given you His indwelling spirit. And so really all you need to do is ask Him. Ask Him to do that powerful work of bringing you into greater and greater appreciation of what you have in Christ. As a matter of fact, the very next words that Paul says in this section of Ephesians are, and I quote, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now, of course, the Spirit who indwells every individual believer is the one and only true and living God. He is God Almighty, God the Spirit. Hence, it's not at all surprising that He does the work of His sanctifying not only on the individual level, but also on the corporate level. God the Spirit is actually in the process of sanctifying the church, preparing the bride of Christ for that great wedding banquet of the Lamb. And so I'm going to give a fairly quick-fire run through the rest of, would you believe, chapters 4 and half of chapter 5 of this same letter to Ephesians, where Paul, I think, is outlining for us how it is that the Spirit empowers the church for increasing holiness. 
We know that the Ephe- we know, sorry, and the Ephesian church knew that when Christ ascended to the right hand of God, will you tell me, when you think Christ ascended, what's the next thing he did? He poured out, yeah, yeah, that's what you'd always think. When you hear Christ ascended, he poured out, they would have known that. But Paul speaks about the ascension of Christ in chapter 4. And just after he spoke about that, saying Christ ascended, he gives something really specific. It's like he gives the, the more concrete detail. Uh, he says that Jesus gave the ministry and the ministers of the word by which that spirit ultimately brings God's church not only to an, into existence but into maturity. Here's in Ephesians 4, just after he's spoken about Christ ascended, he says, verse 11, so Christ himself, having just ascended, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for literally the work of service so that the body of Christ, that is the church, may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. That same word ministry given by the original apostles, prophets, evangelists and pastor teachers is the word ministry that God's church is still to this day preserving and engaging in. The spirit who established the early church by the teaching of these word ministers is the same spirit who continues to build and strengthen his church by the word that they gave and which we, of course, now have in the scriptures. Jesus had once upon a time prayed for his followers, John 17, that God would sanctify them by the truth and he immediately added, your word is truth. So, of course, it's not surprising that when Jesus poured out the Spirit, Paul sees that in concrete terms as ministers of the word, delivering the truth of God. Uh, When Jesus poured out the Spirit, it basically resulted in those original apostles, prophets, evangelists and pastor teachers and so Jesus' prayer was definitely answered. The church received God's word of truth And we've learned and applied that same word to ourselves collectively so we continue to be sanctified as the church of God. Which leads me to say to all of you here now, good on you for being here. Absolutely wonderful that you've made the choice to be here in fellowship under the word of God tonight. You see, church gatherings can on some occasions be more enjoyable and on other occasions be less enjoyable. Coming to church or coming to growth group can be really easy and a joy. Sometimes it can be a chore and a burden. And I know this, I'm a normal person, I feel the same things. But brothers and sisters, regular meeting around the Word of God is actually one of the big ways, it's the big ticket item way that the Holy Spirit works to progressively sanctify us together. If you are keen on growing in holiness, if you're keen on being sanctified, you're doing the right thing by being here. Now, with all that said, apart from giving rise to word ministry that is uh, to and for one another, is there another way that the Spirit also works within us and within the church such that we're increasingly sanctified? Well, yes, there is. And the short answer is that he grows the church in holiness by inspiring and enabling us to serve one another. I'll say that again, the Spirit grows the church in holiness 
by inspiring and enabling us to serve one another. Just as Jesus washed his disciples' feet and said, you want to be blessed, go do likewise. Well, so the spirit that Jesus gives to all believers enables us to serve one another in love. And we're therefore at point three on your outline. And for this one, when it comes to serving one another, there's one big three-chapter slab of teaching in the New Testament that the Apostle Paul gave. And it is, of course, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 through to 14. Now, obviously, if I was going to read this and preach this, that would be, you know, it was a whole sermon. That would be like a half-hour sermon just on this bit. Uh, so what I'm going to do is give a, a real crash course, an overview in these three whole chapters of the Bible. And I'm so proud to hear the Bible pages are turning. That means you're probably turning up 1 Corinthians 12 right about now. Good for you. That's a good thing. Especially because I'm not going to have the Bible text on the screen for this. I'm just going to have the summary bits on the screen as I go through, but I'll read little sections from 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 13, 1 Corinthians 14 as I sort of paint the picture. And hopefully you, if you want to go through this in more detail in your own time, will remember this little framework and that'll help you with your reading. And if you want, I'll make it available to you afterwards. But here we go. Paul begins 1 Corinthians chapter 12 by saying, and this is 1 Corinthians 12 verse 1, Now about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. Except Paul doesn't say that. Because the word gifts is just not there in the original. There's actually no gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12. The word is literally, and I've put it up there, spirituals. That's the word, spiritual things. I think the gist is that Paul's saying now about being spiritual, I don't want you to be uninformed. You see, Paul knows that when it comes to genuine biblical spirituality, it's very easy for people to go astray. And so Paul wants these Corinthians to know what's what and to be informed about spirituals. He then goes on to say that whilst the Holy Spirit inspires and enables many kinds of service, that, verse 7, to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. That is, God the Holy Spirit works not to help me serve or edify me, but to serve and edify the many, the common Good. The Spirit works for me to benefit the church. And because it's the one Holy Spirit working through all individual believers, He's within our inner being, and it's, but it's the one Spirit working through all believers to serve the church, then no matter what ways in which each person serves or contributes or manifests the Spirit, all members have an equally valuable contribution. Paul goes really hard on this one. It's fascinating to read him. He uses the body metaphor. I'll just read a little bit from, from, from verse 21 of chapter 12. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. The head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honourable, we treat with special honour. You see there, Paul's saying that it doesn't matter 
who you are in Christ, you know, whether you serve in this way or that, whether your contribution is this or that, right? All people are equally valuable in terms of what the Spirit does through them to benefit the church. Those that seem less valuable, no, 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 indispensable. The hand can't say to the, the, the eye or whatever, I don't need you, no, no, no. They're all equally important. And then right at the end of making that wonderful point, Paul totally contradicts himself. After just saying that all the contributions that the Spirit empowers us to give are equally valuable, he then says, and this is verse 31, Now, eagerly desire the greater gifts, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. And you're supposed to go, what? You've just said every gift, every, every way that people contribute and serve is equally valuable. And then right after you just say, now, try to get the really good stuff, fellas. And you're supposed to go, why? Well, it's done deliberately to grab your attention and to make us wonder what he means, which of course takes us into the next section of his argument, namely chapter 13. And I suspect this is a part of Paul's argument that some of you are vaguely familiar with, because it's a it's in the past, it's been a favourite sort of passage for people getting married. It's the one that's all about love. You see, the many kinds of spiritual services are no better or worse than one another, neither are those who contribute them. But the attitude, the underlying attitude, the motivating force behind any and every kind of manifestation of the Spirit, but every kind of service, that really, really matters. And the most excellent way is, of course, the way of love. That's what Paul wants you to do. That's why he's being cheeky and said, seek the really good way of serving, love. Genuine love is always other person-centred. It doesn't seek to build me up, it seeks to build up others. Hence, 1 Corinthians 13, I'll read a couple of words from verse 4. Paul says, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonour others, it is not self-seeking. And so then, in order to show what it looks like when we apply this principle of love to our spirit-filled serving, Paul actually uses a worked example. He moves to this whole chapter where he gives an example of uninterpreted tongues, that is, languages that are uninterpreted, which is, of course, self-serving, if I use them in the church, and therefore unspiritual, versus the example of prophecy which serves the church and is therefore in line with the Spirit's work. Paul writes uh, from chapter 14 and verse 2, I'll pull that back, sorry, here it is, chapter 14 verse 2, Paul says, for anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people but to God. And when you first hear that, just by itself, you think, well, that sounds positive. They're speaking to God. I want everyone to pray. I want people to speak to God. But when you've understood where this falls in Paul's argument, this is actually a put-down. Anyone who speaks in a tongue, no one, can under, no one can hear him. He's speaking to God. God understands him. It's that kind of vibe, right? He continues, 14 verse 2, Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. But... Verse 3, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, which we've just learned is fairly unspiritual. But, says Paul, the one who prophesies 
edifies the church. Now, that's in line with what the Spirit is doing. To give you a good example of it, the thing that I've been most looking forward to saying this whole night, and if you've fallen asleep, you need to wake up for it now, that I think is absolutely vitally important for each and every one of us to hear tonight is... And after that, Amen. Didn't I, like, um, look how spiritual I am. I just spoke in, like, a different language and I declared wonderful mystery. Aren't I super spiritual? No. Why didn't you say amen after what I said? You didn't understand it. That would be stupid. Now, I said two bits of rote learned Hebrew. The first one is a bracha, which is a blessing for Shabbat. Um, uh, yeah, I have to think about it now. I've got the gift of uh, interpretation. Blessed are you, our Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has commanded us to light the candles of Shabbat, which is actually untrue. He has not given that command. That would be wrong. So you can't say amen to that wrong thing. And then the second thing I said is a Jewish kid song. My hat has three points, three points is my hat. If it did not have three points, it wouldn't be my hat, right? The profound spiritual truth uttered to God. Amen, yes. But you see, it is just so easy for us to get the wrong idea about makes for what's truly spiritual versus what's actually unspiritual and self-seeking. Look at me. And so Paul says from verse 22 of uh, 1 Corinthians 14, tongues then are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers but for believers. So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and inquirers or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your mind? It's pretty logical, isn't it? And I'm deeply saddened, though not at all surprised to see that there are so many churches around that defy God precisely in this way. Even the unbelievers can see that they've lost the plot. In the middle of his worked example, Paul says, verse 12, since you are eager for gifts of the Spirit, eh, since you are eager for being spiritual, for spirituals, try to excel in those that build up the church. Don't make yourself a star. Do what's actually beneficial for others. So putting all this together, I think, and this is the best I can come up with, but I think it's fairly accurate to say, God the Holy Spirit is on about sanctifying the church by empowering us for word ministry, both individually and corporately, and for other person-centred service. Loving service if you like and following the spirit's leading and cultivating the spirit-filled life that orders your priorities as jesus then others then last of all yourself hence that old cheesy christian acronym joy is as best as i can work out the way to ensure that your nursing home scenario is actually as good as it can possibly be be 
I want to live a life that's spirit-led. And if I make it to the nursing home, which I doubt I will, but I, if I make it there, I want to be able to say, I have contentment and joy because I've cooperated with that spirit's leading and put Jesus and then others first and then myself last. Very quickly, by way of implication, I don't know everyone in this room, it may be the case that you've not yet even received God the Holy Spirit. God the Spirit as yet does not indwell you. In other words, you've not yet turned and repented and put your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour. If you've not done that, for goodness sake, do it. You cross over from death to life when you make Jesus your Lord and Saviour. God the Spirit, according to Jesus, indwells you and therefore the Father and the Son, you're in their presence both now and into all eternity... And you live, frankly, the best way that there is to live. Repent, make Jesus your Lord and Saviour. Last but not least, there used to be this thing that we did that we've long lost uh, sight of called spiritual disciplines. I think one of the reasons we lost sight of these things is because it's very easy for people to do what 1 Corinthians 14 says not to do. Look at me how good I am because of my amazing spiritual disciplines. I'm self-serving, right? Or it could be along the lines of, well, I must do these spiritual things in order to make sure that I stay or even merit God's favour, stay in or merit God's favour. And I can see why people would be against the notion of spiritual disciplines, right? You're not saved by coming to church. You're not saved by reading your Bible, etc. But because you are saved and because you've been declared holy and the spirit that's working in you wants you to continually become holy, it might be a really good idea to think, well... What are some ways I can make use of spiritual disciplines? It may be the case that you've worked out that the way the Holy Spirit is going to work in you to, to sanctify you is through the Word of God. And you might think, you know what, I hardly ever read the Word of God. Maybe I should just discipline myself to do that. There are some people, I, I knew some, someone who used to say, no Bible, no breakfast. Just so that they would have to read the Bible if they wanted to have breakfast in the morning. That's a good one. Uh, for me, there was a period of my life where tooth teeth brushing worked. I can't walk out of the house in the morning without having brushed my teeth. No Bible, no toothbrush. Mm. There's a spiritual discipline. Uh, fasting in the Scriptures is never commanded, uh, but it's not prohibited either. It's at the discretion of the person. But you should never know if someone's fasting or not, because according to Jesus, you'd be a hypocrite if you'll make your face look so, oh, I'm fasting, yeah, look at me, have pity on me. No, you've just wasted the fast, right? Um, fasting won't bring you closer to God, unless, and I love saying this, unless you give up all food and drink for like a month, then you'll get closer to God <laughs> if, you, if you do your fasting. But for some personalities and some people it may be something that just makes them a little bit more cognizant of their need to consciously cooperate with the work of the Holy Spirit. If that's you, for goodness sake, go for it. You're free to not fast and you're free to fast, if that's something that's going to be helpful. You see, I can't prescribe anything here because I don't know all the different personalities, but you can work it out. You can think to yourself, well, God the Holy Spirit has made me holy. He wants to keep pushing me in that direction. How can I get on board with this? To that end, let me conclude in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you uh, for your indwelling spirit by which we've been declared holy in your sight and by which we can continue to be sanctified. We thank you that you sanctify us through your spirit-inspired word. 
and that you do so for us both as individuals and also corporately as a church. Heavenly Father, may we not get into the habit of failing to meet together, but instead meet together in order to become increasingly holy. And Heavenly Father, may we follow the Spirit's lead in seeking to serve the common good in love, putting ourselves last and others first. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Song? Yes.